and welcome to episode 402 of Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching, with me, Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher and teacher educator, and I'm particularly interested in practices of teaching, in mathematics teaching, and in education about health and nutrition. My book about teaching is Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, and it's available on request for your local library and wherever books are sold online. You can email me by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com and you can follow me on Twitter where I use the handle at InsideEd. This week's guest on the podcast is difficult to categorise. Words like musician, author, philosopher, blogger, TED speaker, entrepreneur, computer programmer, philanthropist, circus performer could be or could have been used at various times of his life. I first came across him when I read his short book, Anything You Want, and found it honest and insightful. My second connection with this week's guest is through a much-loved CD I bought a number of years ago by the singer Laurie Cullen, which came with a now-famous message that began, Your CD has been gently taken from our CD baby shelves with sterilised, contamination-free gloves and placed onto a satin pillow. A team of 50 employees inspected your CD and polished it to make sure it was in the best possible condition before mailing, and so on. CD Baby was the name of the company that this week's guest, Derek Sivers, established to sell his own music and later his friend's music. The next time I became aware of Derek Sivers was when I heard him on a podcast and he encouraged listeners to write to him with any questions they had. And at the time, I was working on a draft of my speech for the launch of my book, and I sent the first draft to Derek, who read it and offered suggestions on how to improve it. His website, sivers.org, is a treasure trove of resources to explore, enjoy and make you think. In the course of our interview, we cover many topics, including the single best quality of school teachers, the powerful impact on Derek of one teacher, what inspires him to create, the importance of focus and of finding something that is endlessly interesting for you and how a great teacher interrupts expectations. In the course of the interview, Derek recommends many books and articles to read. When I spoke to Derek Sivers through Zoom, I noted that my knowledge of him is that he is an entrepreneur, a thinker and generous expert. I asked him how he would describe himself for someone who has not come across his work before. Well, Sean, I describe myself as a generous expert. What a coincidence. Uh, No, sorry. Um, I mean, titles are like awards, right? Like you get them after having achieved something. So they feel very past tense for me, right? Like they're history. I used to say, like, oh, I am a musician, I am an entrepreneur. But after a while, it felt insincere. Like, well, I used to do those things. I mean, I'm not doing them right now. So my favorite answer when a stranger asks what I do is to say, hmm, I don't know. (laughs) Like completely ignoring my past, which is really more authentic because I never think of my past. And then it makes them think I'm weird. Like. Who, who doesn't know what they do? What a weird thing to say. But it leads to more interesting conversations. But that said, being authentic isn't useful or considerate. So the real answer to your question is, uh, in short, I just say that I write pop philosophy. 
And what's the difference between pop philosophy and philosophy? Philosophy sounds serious. <laughs> uh, it sounds old and ancient and takes itself far too seriously. Pop philosophy sounds digestible, maybe useful, hopefully useful. And accessible, maybe. Accessible, good word, yeah. And how did you come to be living in Oxford in England? Because you're from the United States. Yeah, I left the U.S. 11 years ago, hoping to never come back. But really, Oxford was just a smart international place to raise my kid. Honestly, Singapore or Geneva were my first choice. But Oxford was a nice compromise with his mom, who didn't like Singapore and felt that uh, she didn't want to learn another language. So Oxford it was. And if we go on then to education and to bringing up your son, what is school for or what are schools for in your view? Oh God. Hopefully a place that encourages you to be smart. Like I, th I think we all have the ability to be smart and to be stupid, right? Like, so to think carefully or not think at all. And a lot of it depends on our environment. So when I think back to my teenage years, I used to be in a stupid circle of friends that would just smoke pot, hang out, be stupid and do nothing but make dumb jokes and say stupid things. And that environment encouraged me to be stupid. Like that's what was rewarded. But when I'm in an environment where people are being smart and actually like rewarded for deeper, deeper critical thinking, it rubs off on me. It makes me want to ask better questions and challenge assumptions and go beyond the first answer and all those things that, uh, you know, hanging out with your drunk friends don't do. Uh, so I hope that's what schools are for. But I'm not sure though. I mean, my kid just turned eight and he was in the best school in Oxford, but the school shut down two months ago and now he's learning more at home than he ever did in school. Like he's really thriving now, these last two COVID-19 months of lockdown, he's thriving more now than he ever did in school, even though it was known as the best school for his age in Oxford. So I'm not really sure what to make of that or what schools are for. I was hoping you could tell me. And without making it too personal, when you say thriving, what is stronger about what he's learning now or about his education now than when he was attending a school? He seems more into it. His mom and I are making projects for him that he finds more intrinsically interesting. So we'll just pick a person he finds interesting and dive into that person's history and then he'll write a report on what he learned about that person. So I played him this one Bob Marley song he liked, uh, Buffalo Soldier. And he said, "Why? what's a Buffalo Soldier? And so I was explaining to him what the lyrics were about because it was kind of about slavery and uh, soldiers and it's like, you know, brought in from Africa to the heart of America. So I was teaching him what these lyrics meant. And then he really wanted to know more. And then he wanted to learn more about Bob Marley. And, and so we ended up watching like a 90 minute documentary about Bob Marley and reading all through the Wikipedia page about him. And then he wrote a paper on what he learned about Bob Marley. And pretty soon they were doing a thing where he, he was uh, role playing for school. So he got dressed up as Bob Marley to describe why 
why Bob Marley was important, that it wasn't just about the music, it was about the way that he brought people together. And, and it's just like, he's into that, he's thriving. Because maybe because it's just the three of us now, his mom and I, and him making things for him that he's intrinsically interested in. It, giving him books that he wants to read, to read instead of just, okay, here, you're gonna read this book now where he's just dreading it, not into it. And maybe that personal feedback, like even as we're sitting there going through the, the times tables and numbers and stuff like that, it's that direct feedback. Like we can see like, okay, he's got this. We can skip past this. Let's focus on this bit that's not coming as easily to him. You know, like all these things, it just feels like he's more engaged, learning more and all that than he did in school. And seems to be taking the initiative more, maybe following his interests. Yeah, finding that intersection with his interests, but not just, you know, his interests uh, shooting arrows at the side of a wall, but um, his interests mixed with our uh, little nudging towards something that we can tell would be a learning, growing experience for him. And if we zoom out a little bit then, what is your vision of an educated person? Or maybe another way to think about this is when you think of an educated person, who comes to mind for you? Well, educated is past tense. So it just implies to me that you have been educated, like you have completed the assignments, <laughs> that's all. But I know some very educated people that are not smart. I think that most people only think when they're forced to. Like they did well in high school, so they got into Harvard, and then they graduated Harvard and just haven't done any thinking since. I actually know three different people that went to like these fancy Ivy League schools and just, I swear, haven't done a minute of thinking since. So to be an educated person is not impressive to me. I think anybody can be educated just by following orders. But to be smart, like to be a critical thinker, to challenge assumptions and look past the obvious, to question the world, like that's impressive and doesn't require that you have been educated. So yeah, I don't have a particular person that comes to mind. Well, I don't know. I, okay, I do, but that's just because this morning, uh, an hour ago, I was listening to an interview with uh, Naval Ravikant. I think that's how you say his name. I don't even know what his educational background is, but a shockingly smart thinker, but nothing he says sounds like it was coming from any kind of quote unquote educated. You know, he, he sounds like he's in his 40s or 50s now, and I doubt any of this came from when he was a teenager in school. You know, I'm 50 now, and I feel like the smart people I'm around, schooling was decades ago. It is so long gone, and I think like educated seems to imply, uh, yeah, teachers and being taught with assignments and such. I suppose some people might think that because you're, if you like, downplaying the idea of educated and upplaying the idea of smart, that there's something not as malleable about that, that smart is either something you have or you haven't, whereas educated is something that you could actually achieve. Oh, no, sorry, time. sorry. I don't want to give that wrong. No, I mean, like, you know, smart is something you do. It's not something you are. Like, I don't, I don't believe that anybody is smart or is stupid. It's a matter of somebody being smart or being stupid. Like, I actually don't believe there are any stupid people. 
It's just people who are being stupid, who are, who, who are deciding on a moment-to-moment basis not to think and not to challenge assumptions or to just jump to conclusions, to go with whatever first impulse comes into their head and they just go with that instead of challenging it. That to me is being stupid. And then being smart, well, I guess is the opposite of that, right? Critical thinking, challenging assumptions, looking past the obvious, questioning the world, that's being smart. No, it's definitely not a fixed thing. But then, hey, you asked this, you started the, uh, your first question was asking me how I would describe myself. And I, I said that thing about how like titles are like awards, they're past tense. So that's how I think of the word educated. It's, it's a past tense thing that's just something you did. Like when somebody says that they're well-traveled, that in itself doesn't impress me. Like any idiot can get on a plane and go somewhere. That doesn't take any skill. So I kind of feel that, yeah, almost any idiot can just show up to school and complete the assignments, but it doesn't mean that they're smart or going to be smart. A lot of people just complete the assignments, but then go through their life in a stupid way. So the idea of resting on your laurels is alien to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, it, uh, or familiar to me, but undesirable. <laughs> <laughs> Has any book you've read particularly influenced how you think about teaching or learning? Not any one, no. If you go to sivers.org slash book, I've been doing this project ever since 2007, where every book I've read since 2007, I take detailed notes on it. I underline or circle every sentence or idea that I find interesting and want to reflect more upon later. I do this just for my own sake, and I was just keeping these privately on my computer, but after a few years, I decided to share them. So now it's an ongoing process. So sivers.org slash book, you'll see the 300-something books I've read since 2007 with detailed notes on each. So those books collectively have been the biggest influence on me by far, but not any one book in particular. And I think it's because the subject of teaching and learning is really one of my favorite subjects in the world, which is why you and I are having this conversation. And so you'll see that of these hundreds of books listed there, a lot of them are around this subject. You know, there are many books that are directly about learning but a lot that are kind of around that subject. So that's why I think that they've all influenced me a little bit, but there wasn't one key book that changed everything for me on that subject. And I can really recommend that list because it's, it certainly has influenced some of my reading over the last number of years. Just your, I mean, you give them all a, a, a number of points out of 10 and uh, it's really, really very useful. Cool. Thank you. Who do you consider to be a great teacher or educator or what would the qualities of such a person be? I think about interrupting expectations. Like, like if you were to ask the class, what's one plus one? And then when the class answers two, you say, right, uh, you didn't ask me one of what? Like one drop of water plus one drop of water doesn't make two drops of water. So always ask for more information. Ask what we're really talking about. Never rush to an answer. Like if a teacher said that to me, like that'd be a great teacher. It's someone who teaches a mindset, not just delivering information. Anybody can deliver information. 
but I would love a teacher that would help deliver a mindset of questioning assumptions, interrupting expectations. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Surprise. Yeah. Well, it's, it's form, okay. It's teaching the students how to carry on and learn on their own or how to be smart out in the world that is outside of this classroom. If you're just sitting here taking in information, well, that's not, again, anybody can do that. That's not being smart. Um, but if teaching somebody how to go out into the world and think deeper, challenge, you know, go beyond what's necessary. Yeah. Ask better questions. Yeah. That would, that would be a great teacher in my opinion. I like the, what, the example you give of the one drop of water plus one drop of water. Can you think of any other examples? Well, yeah, my algebra teacher, when I was probably eight or nine or something, we started learning algebra and I didn't like it at first. It's like, you know, two X plus Y equals this. And I just, it was like, why is it always X and Y? And she said, well, I don't know. That's just what people do. And I said, well, could it be anything like one cat plus two tin cans equals this? And she said, yeah, it can be anything. I said, okay, well, from now on on my homework, then instead of X and Y, can I just make it anything and draw pictures if I want? And she said, yeah, okay. So then I thrived. I was like, oh yeah, here we go. <laughs> and uh, all of my algebra from that point on, like algebra in that moment became fun to me because she just helped teach me that one thing that you don't have to copy the example as long as you get the gist of the idea you can get creative within it i was like that changed everything for me and then i ended up being a little math whiz that went on to be like state champion uh in math but i think it was partially because of her giving me that freedom to understand that it wasn't just rote copying and all she did really was just stand back and let you follow your instinct yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was there a teacher apart from her who had, or, or, or possibly her, was there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Oh, yes. Do you already know this answer of mine? Well, I know there's uh, one musician. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I talk about him publicly a lot. He was a massive influence on me. Kimo Williams. K-I-M-O. In fact, if you want to read the full story, if you go to sivers.org slash Kimo, K-I-M-O. Uh, I tell the whole story there, but I'm happy to tell it anytime. So Kimo Williams, I was 18, maybe 17 years old, living in Chicago. And I was just a month or so out from going off to music school. I was about to go to Berklee College of Music in Boston. And it was just maybe five weeks away that I was about to leave. And that's when I met him just through circumstance, and he used to teach there. So when I mentioned that I was about to attend Berkeley, he said, oh, really? He said, okay. There. He said, I have a theory that you can graduate that four-year school in two years, and I can help you do it. He said, I used to teach there, and I think that their pace goes much slower than is necessary. So yeah, he and I did a crash course of maybe just five private lessons at his house over four or five weeks. And in those five lessons, he taught me uh, four semesters of 
harmony and arranging and music theory classes so that when I arrived at Berkeley School of Music on my opening, on the opening day, when they kind of test you into what levels to see what you know already, yeah, I tested out of, yeah, like six semesters of uh, required classes. That's what he taught me in six hours. So the, the meta lesson here was that I can learn way faster than schools usually teach, that schools have to teach at a pace where the slowest students can keep up. But if I'm driven, I can go way faster and further. So yeah, Kimo's teaching of that belief system changed everything for me. So was his insight an insight into Derek Sivers and his potential talent in music? Or was it an insight into curricula and how they are aimed at maybe not the lowest common denominator, but maybe aimed at the middle? ground. Yeah, the, the latter. He didn't know me at all. I was just some kid that called him on the phone uh, from a classified ad with a random question about music typesetting. And, you know, within one minute, he just, oh, you're, you're going to Berkeley, huh? Well, come by my studio. I think I can teach you in six lessons what they take, you know, three years to teach. So it wasn't having to do with me. Granted, I, I passed the the original test when he said like, come by my studio tomorrow morning at 9am. I think I can teach you this stuff. And sure enough, I was there at 8.59am. He only later, like 20 years later, when I overheard him telling the story to somebody else, that's when he said that this thing about come to my studio at 9am tomorrow, apparently he says it all the time to young musicians that say they want to learn something from him. He's like, all right, come by my studio tomorrow morning at 9am and I'll show you. Apparently he'd been saying it to many students for a long time and nobody ever had. I was the first person that actually showed up at his door at 9 a.m. He was surprised when I rang the doorbell. So yes, I guess it was, it was a little bit because of my character, because I was ambitious enough, because I really, really wanted to excel. I wanted to be a great, successful musician. I wanted to do whatever it takes to be great. And so this guy sounded like he could teach me something that could make me great. But mostly I think he just had a belief that yeah, the typical curricula goes way too slowly um, and it's geared towards the lowest common denominator. What's your view of the work of public school teachers generally? I'm in awe of their patience. <laughs> I think it's so hard to wait for a student to figure out the answer themselves instead of just telling them. That's what I find really hard when working with my kid uh, homeschooling these last couple months oh, it's so tempting to just give them the answer, but instead you gotta wait for them to figure it out. So yeah, my, my main view of public schools now is I'm just in awe of their patience and I'm thankful for it. And, and I'm not making the connection here, but maybe there is a connection. Your interest in music, did that come from school or did it come from somewhere else? Well, I think it helped that my mom made me take music lessons ever since I was six. Like it was non-negotiable piano, viola, clarinet. I got to choose, but I always had to be taking something. Like when I said, I, I'm sick of piano lessons, she said, okay, well then pick a different instrument, but you have to play something. So, so I did. So, and I kept going with clarinet in particular for a long time, I think from the age of uh, eight until 17 or something like that, I played clarinet. But then when I heard heavy metal at the age of 14, I heard the song Iron Man by Black Sabbath. I was like, oh, yes, I need that. 
and I just fell in love with that sound, well then, yeah, I, I went and bought myself a guitar, an electric guitar and a distortion pedal, and I just thrived. And I like quickly became like the best guitarist in school and everybody was like you know, in awe of my mad guitar skills. And I think it was probably because I had been like playing music since I was six years old, even though it was piano, viola and clarinet, that it gave me a foundation so that when the intrinsic interest came, like all oh, the piano, viola and clarinet, I was not intrinsically interested in it. I was somewhat forced to do it. But then when the intrinsic interest came, I was already well prepped. And your mother, when she insisted on you taking music lessons, was it that she recognized the interest in music or was it just that she believed in music? I mean, if you had been, say, interested in art or sport or, you know, calligraphy, would she have, <laughs> w- would she have directed you towards that? No, I got the feeling, I mean, who knows, maybe. It's hard to go back and do the, you know, the counterfactual, whatever, but I got the impression it was just something she believed was like a rule of the house. Is that kids need to take music classes and that's that. And how much of your education was conventional um, and was, you know, like passive, you know, you just attended class and just did it on your, on your own steam as opposed to being actively chosen. Like say, when you talk about going to Berkeley, I think you were actively choosing something then, but I'm interested in the transition from, you know, when did you start taking control of your own education? Oh, great question. And massive transition night and day before and after. So I almost failed high school. I was terrible at the passive. I just had no interest as they were teaching things like English rhetoric. And they kept saying, this is going to help you get into a good school. I was just, you know, long hair and my heavy metal t-shirt in the back of the class. Just like, I hate you. (laughs) I hate this subject. I'm not going to a normal college. I'm going to be a musician. I don't care. I already know what I want. I don't care about this. So I almost failed. uh, I think the deal was actually I would get uh, failing grades on the homework because I would just blow off the homework, but then I would get an A on the test. So the two averaged out so that I didn't actually fail the class, but almost. But then, yeah, after high school, when I got to finally choose my own path, and I decided I'm going off to music school to do nothing but music. Well, then as soon as I got to music school, I mean, I just massively excelled, right? Like not just the personal intrinsic zoom of motivation, but I also was like top of the class and always going way above and beyond whatever was required. And I actually loved it when my teachers would assign things, even like, you know, reharmonizing this jazz composition, something that was out of my realm of specifically what I wanted, but I still saw it as like, oh, this all benefits me in my goal as a musician. So I want to kick ass at whatever they assign me. And I did, you know, they, they would assign, you know, please write one eight bar composition by next class. And I would go write three 80 bar compositions by next class, you know, whatever was being assigned. I just loved taking the personal challenge to go above and beyond. So anyway, sorry, back to your question though. Yeah. I had regular old passive schooling from age five to 17 but it wasn't until I was 18 and ever since, like the, the actively chosen, as you say, that I really learned. 
In fact, again, when we talk about being educated and people that my friends I know that went to Ivy League schools, I feel that I've learned so much more since school than I ever learned in school, right? Again, it's like I'm 50 now. I graduated university when I was 20. So it's like 30 years I've been out here learning. And my love of learning in general didn't come until after school. So I think, I don't know, I think I'm just realizing while talking to you that I see school as covering the downside instead of serving the upside. Meaning like for kids who don't know what they want, well, at least it keeps them at a baseline capability. But for those of us who know what we want, school feels just like a a little stepping stone. It's not the point. And how early did you know what you wanted? The song Iron Man. Okay, so 14. (laughs) Yeah, that changed it. Yeah, upon hearing that, I was like, this is what I want. I'm going to be a musician. It, It really came all at once at 14. I'm so thankful for that. Like it just, yeah. I, I, I love that you said earlier your uh, example about calligraphy or whatever. That it's so useful to just have something, anything that you're pursuing, or for a kid to have something, anything that they're pursuing. It really kind of doesn't matter what it is, because in pursuit of being great at that one thing you learn everything else as a side effect. You know, you learn how to learn. You learn how to improve. You learn how to practice. You learn mastery. But just by having something, anything that you're into. Yeah. Um, so so it, it's seeing a destination or seeing, is it even going so too far to say to see a meaning for what you're doing? You know, I usually don't like the word meaning, but you're right. That's a perfect, perfect use of that. Yeah. It gives all of the other learning meaning when you can now apply it to this thing that you intrinsically want that you're driven towards and how well did your education prepare you for being an entrepreneur because that is an important part of of your life the 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 founding of cd baby and so on (laughs) um it didn't (laughs) at all yeah i feel bad when i hear people who say that they they want to get great at business so they're going to go get an MBA or go get a degree in business and I think that's what what's taught in schools in business is often kind of like how to be a business consultant kind of how to be a an employee in the middle of things the how to be an entrepreneur I don't know of any teaching that. Anybody listening, if you want to correct me and email me and tell me uh, who's teaching entrepreneurship successfully, that would be great. It feels to me like something that's just so holistic, people-focused. It's very, very much about psychology. It's very much having to think of things from the other person's point of view. It's very much just being out in the world. That's the customer's point of view when you're talking about the other person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Client, customer, partner, any of these things. Like it's dealing with other people and learning the psychology of, of other people and even all the people that you network with, you know, and it's kind of an icky verb, but networking, knowing a lot of people, keeping in touch with them, not 
just for your own selfish interest, but in finding some mutual interest with all these others. I mean, that's where a lot of these things we call lucky breaks happen is just being constantly out there and staying at the forefront of people's minds. And yeah, and being an entrepreneur is often about just kind of being out in the world with no rules and no system and making your own rules and making your own system and finding a way to do what nobody else is doing. A lot of being an entrepreneur is about that, not about formula. And being resilient when the, when, when the tough times come. Yeah, su- being super flexible, very, very flexible. I mean, like almost just day to day, having to change your plans accordingly uh, when you get feedback from the world saying they want this instead of that. Yeah. Learning is very important to you, Derek. When did you consciously find that, that out about yourself? I think just because I was ambitious. Um, I was very ambitious. And so I saw learning as a key to my success. So originally the key to being a successful musician, then later to running a successful business. And only later, later, after I sold the business, like at the age of 40, did I really lift my head up and get interested in other things in life. But until then, learning was important to me because it was a means to an end of success at this thing that I was already focused on. But now I just love having my brain tickled. Like I just love learning a new way of looking at things, a new perspective. I love being surprised. So I think now, only now in my, since my forties have I loved learning for its own sake. And, and do you think that that, was, that that could have happened earlier or was it something that you had to age into or had to mature into in order to, to look at learning from that more personal way, if you like? I think when I was younger, I couldn't have because it was too vague. Like, I'm glad that my younger self was narrow-minded and focused Yeah, like I say, I feel bad for my classmates that didn't know what they wanted. And they just drifted into a normal, boring life, like pushing papers around in middle management for some dumb company because they had no target. They had no focus. They were just kind of ambivalently out there in the world, kind of just could do whatever. And they just kind of like, well, I guess I'll send out my CV and try to get a job somewhere. No, this place hired me. I guess I'll do that. You know, it's like, I feel bad when I meet those people 10 years later. I went to one high school reunion and I was a full-time professional musician at that time. And I went back and saw my old classmates and they were all just like, God, they looked so old and fat. They were like 28, but they looked like 50 because they were wearing suits and ties and just some dumb job. And it's like, wow, what happened to you people? Um, And that's when I realized, oh, wow. This is what happens when you don't have a focus. You're just adrift and doing nothing. So, um, yeah. And, and given like that in the world, there's an infinite amount of things to learn. How do you decide what to learn? Well, I'm still quite focused on success in my current projects. Like currently, I'm really into being a great writer and programmer and dad, I guess. So. That's still what I'm focused on learning. But sometimes I think we just stumble into things. Like Portugal gave me resident status just through circumstance. 
So now I have a little plastic card that says I'm a resident of Portugal. So now I'm learning Portuguese. Like I never would have chosen to learn Portuguese, but just because of circumstance, well, all right, now I, I'm going to learn Portuguese. And also uh, it made me smile big when you uh, said that you like my book list because when people I admire tell me what books they've loved, that has a huge influence on me. Like so many people said the book Sapiens was great. And like after 20 times of hearing people say that I should read Sapiens, I said, okay, all right, I'll go read Sapiens. And wow, like huge surprise, not usually my thing, but I loved it. And then similarly, Cows, Pigs, Wars, and Witches was amazing. Guns, Germs, and Steel was amazing. And I never would have read these, but just one person I admire said, you should read this. And so I did. Even things like Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography called Total Recall. I have no interest in Arnold Schwarzenegger, but somebody I admire said that he really liked it. And so I went, huh, all right. And so I read Total Recall and it was surprisingly interesting and enlightening and inspiring. And it was just because one person said so. So yeah, um, deciding what to learn is usually this random stumble and people pointers. But also informing your core practices or your core priorities. Usually, and then sometimes deliberately spreading out another direction. Like if I've read too many books that are just purely focused on my current priorities, it gets a little boring. I don't want to read yet another book on being a great writer or a programmer or a parent, like if that's all I've been reading lately. So then I'll just go read a book on salt <laughs> or something like that, just to, just to spread out. I just started listening to the Odyssey, the Homer original translated by Emily Wilson. There's a new translation that I, I never read the Odyssey. I usually didn't have any interest, but Tyler Cowen is somebody I find very interesting. I admire him. And so he interviewed Emily Wilson. And so I heard her talking about her translation of the Odyssey. And suddenly I was like, huh, I never would have thought about the Odyssey, but now, because Tyler Cowen pointed me that direction, I'm really interested in the Odyssey now. So yeah, I just started listening to that this morning. Okay. And how do you, well, there's two ways of asking this. How do you avoid distraction or how do you maintain focus in your learning? Yeah, that is kind of two halves of the same, isn't it? Well, first, the concept of flow by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Go look it up if you're, in, you know, I'm saying this to the listeners, like look up flow um, and nobody knows how to spell his last name. But <laughs> if you uh, search for the word flow and you see some guy with a Mikkel with a long Polish looking last name, that's him. The key point of it that interests me about the concept of flow, which in short just means losing yourself in your work in a wonderful way where like time flies. The key point is that the work has to be difficult enough to not be boring, like not too easy where it's boring, but not too difficult where it's overwhelming. So I think that's the answer to how do I avoid distraction is I try to keep my work in that flow state where it's, if something gets too hard, I find a way to break it down. So it's not too hard because once things get too hard, I get distracted. Like when I, I bonk my head up against something that's too difficult, I find myself opening a browser to surf reddit or something stupid like that and same thing if something's too easy it becomes boring and then i just don't want to do it and i look for distractions that are more interesting so instead you try to keep 
your work in that flow state where it's neither too easy nor too difficult. But then maintaining focus, that's usually comes from, <laughs> from the state of being unfinished. That when something is unfinished, I feel constipated. <laughs> like it's, it's physically uncomfortable. I just want to get it out. It's like pressure building up. I hate it. I hate it when things are unfinished. So I'm usually learning for the sake of creating something. And so I want to learn this subject so I can create this thing and get it out. And I think that more than anything keeps me focused is this discomfort of something being unfinished. I just so badly want to finish it that I don't want distractions right now. I just want to finish this thing. I think it's interesting that you talk about something being unfinished because that's quite different to something being just started. Because when, you, when you're talking about something that's unfinished, the finish line is in sight. Whereas when you get started, the finish line is so far away, it's not even unfinished. So I, I wonder, does, does that make a difference as opposed, like unfinished as opposed to, you know, I still have a steep learning curve here. I am so glad you caught that. You just, you caught a glimpse into my mental state right now in May, 2020, where I have three or more projects that are very close to finished, but not finished. And so I'm feeling very like, you know, shut up, ignore the whole world, uh, ignore everything, focus, focus, focus. I just need to finish these. But you're right. I'm just beaming as you said this, because there's an absolutely different excitement and joy that comes when you first start something. That's almost like falling in love. That's like, I bounce out of bed at 5am because I'm so excited to do that thing that I, that's like the joy of discovery. Man, that's just a thrill. Then I don't need to try to stay focused because it's just, it's almost obsession. Again, like when you first fall in love with somebody and you're just kind of obsessed, you don't need to, you know, how do you maintain focus on the person you just fall, are falling in love with? No, nobody asks that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maintain focus. I think maybe the reason your question took me there too is that it seems to imply that I need to, I need to force myself to remain focused on this thing. And how do you let things go then? I mean, if we think about things like, you know, say learning Portuguese or, you know, say reading uh, Schwarzenegger's biography, why wouldn't you go even deeper into, say, Portuguese and deeper and deeper and deeper or, you know, deeper into Schwarzenegger and into his <laughs> way of thinking? Like, where, where, where do you just say, OK, I've gone far enough in that now. I'm going back to where I was. Or, yes, I'm actually going to get really into Portuguese and I'm going to start exploring the literature of the, of, of the language and things like that. I don't stop myself very well deliberately. Um, I usually do go down the rabbit hole, but that's okay. I'm almost always glad I did. But yeah, I love that you talk about like how far do you go? So it's not a, it's not a binary, do you go down the rabbit hole or not? It's It's how far. So even just reading a whole book about Schwarzenegger already puts me in the, the 1% of the world. <laughs> like, you know, that I know more about Schwarzenegger now just from reading that one book than most people know, I guess. But yeah, with most, I just, don't you just kind of find that your, your intrinsic interest 
just kind of dries up after a certain point. Like it's, okay, that was enough. I'm, I'm interested in linguistics, but only to a certain point. I don't really feel like becoming a professional linguist now, but I'm glad that I took this 30 hour course in linguistics or read these three books about linguistics, but I don't feel like reading 20 more. But then there are those occasional things where it, it just feels endless. Like to me, programming, computer programming, I love it for its own sake. I find it endlessly interesting. I love doing it. I love learning about it. I love talking about it. I love programming. And it started out 23 years ago as just a quick means to an end. I was just trying to sell my CD. And so I just quickly had to build a little shopping cart on my site. And so I just had to quickly learn a little bit of programming just to do that. But then it just kind of kept going and kept going. And just slowly over many years, I just found that my interest in it just kept growing. Yeah. Uh, and how do you learn in general? Books. I love the long, quiet focus of books. But then it really helps to mix in as many senses as possible, like listening to things, watching multimedia videos, courses that give assignments. So in short, I think the, the more different methods, the better, like the, the stronger foundation your learning has when it comes in from many different inputs and sources. And I think you also spoke about cross-referencing different different sources and kind of that some some people or some media are better at explaining ideas than others yes oh man I, this was so useful there have been just a couple times that i because i'm such a fan of books and i'll listen to people's recommendations and so people will say well if you want to learn this thing you should read this book this is the one so i'll say okay here we go and i'll start with that book and it'll just be like a slog it'll just feel uphill I'm like, man, this is hard. This is too hard. And then I'll switch to some other thing, like some video or some audio or even just a different book. And suddenly it's just, ah, this is so easy. Okay, it was just a different, different teaching method, a different focus. Like for some reason, the way that this person is describing it just makes all the sense into the world to me. And that person taught in a way that didn't make sense to me. So yeah, I think it really, really helps to have a, a variety of, of inputs and sources. I, I know that creating is very important for you and you've, you've mentioned that. When did you realize that creating was important for you? You can probably predict what I'm going to say. Uh, like being a successful musician was my first ambition, right? Like that's what it was all about, making music. So that's all about creating, creating a lot, creating great music. And that's basically the only measure by which you're judged is what you create. So I think that that value system stayed. I don't really like learning without creating. Like if I go learn a subject for a hundred hours or a thousand hours and do nothing with it, it feels like it was pointless. So I'm still ambitious like that. I like, I get that it can be interesting to have your brain tickled to learn about some new thing, but I still have that ultimate value that I want to always turn it into something that it's almost pointless unless I'm using it to create something. And do you have a memory of creating something that you were proud of for the first time, presumably as a musician? Yeah, I guess the first time I wrote and recorded a song that sounded like my heroes, you know, that's such a great feeling. It's one thing to write a song 
where you're in your bedroom strumming an acoustic guitar. But when you actually plug it into the, the box and put in some layers and you put some drums and a bass or like turn on the effects or whatever, and to hear it sounding like a real professional recording is just a mind blower. Yeah, I'll never forget that. And apart from music, what do you like to create? I mean, I know you're working on three books at the moment. Is that, is that where it's at at the moment? Or Yeah, that's my main thing. I mean, I'm really excited about writing many different books. And partially that's com- coming from the fact that I didn't really take my writing seriously until just a year or two ago. I, never, I didn't consider myself a writer until a year or two ago. But, oh man, I have got a whole folder on my hard drive full of probably a couple hundred things that I want to create someday. Like I want to design and build a house from scratch. I want to make a hosting company uh, called like 100 Year Hosting or something like that, that will host websites that will stay alive after you die. So uh, maybe like a trust set up or something like that, where the trust will own the domain name or have rights to update it. So say for like a full hundred years or many decades after you die, your domain name and your website will stay up and alive and that will be your legacy after you die. I'd love to set up that system, like create the the legal and technical structure to help that happen. I have an idea called B Major that I really want to make, bmajor.com, like a place to highlight the next generation of musicians and showcase them. I'd love to make a forest over 15 years, like buy a hundred acres of dead land somewhere and hire forestation experts to cultivate it back into a thick forest over the course of 15 years. And then I think it can take care of itself. I would love to make an app that connects those few remaining people on earth that still like talking on the phone. I feel like everybody has just uh, descended into texting only, but a few of us still prefer talking on the phone. So I have an app called Earmouth that I want to make that is uh, specifically for, yeah, connecting those people. And Cloud Free, Cloud Free is my idea of like a site or a service that teaches everybody tech independence, because I think everybody has become too dependent on the cloud, dependent on Google. Like, how upset would you be if Google deleted your account? Well, if it would be devastating to you, then you are in a precarious position because Google can and might just delete your account by accident or for no reason, and there's nothing you can do about it. So I, I want to teach people how to be tech independent and cloud-free. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> but those no, are the kinds of things. That's fascinating. But where, where, do, where do those kinds of ideas come from? Pain, <laughs> anger. What I, I often notice what persistently angers me or frustrates me for years at a time and doesn't end. Some, some desires or interests come and go. You know, like you might this month think that you want a dog, but a year from now you don't, right? But if you find that years have gone by and you still want this thing, well, then you should pay attention. And especially with anger, if there's a certain subject that just gets you almost unreasonably upset, you should pay attention to that. It's probably telling you something like this is a a wrong that you need to write in the world. So yeah, tech independence for, we'll just talk about that one. It makes me scared and sad for my friends that are 
completely dependent on cloud services. And of course, they just have Gmail do their email because, you know, it's Gmail and they put all of their important photos into Instagram or Facebook and they're completely dependent on, say, Google calendars for their calendar or their uh, Apple's cloud copy of their contacts for their contacts and they just completely depend on these companies that don't care about them. It makes me really sad and angry to see how far things have gone that direction because when I first got into the internet in like 1994, more people were self-hosting things. It was just a given that you did everything yourself. There weren't really portals. So way more people had homepages. They had their own sites. They had their own domain name. They made their own HTML. They didn't depend on WordPress to do it for them. They know how to just create, you know, you type open bracket HTML, close bracket, open bracket body, close bracket, you know, type a sentence, paragraph tag, open bracket a href equals there's the link like people knew what a url was and it makes me sad when it's like i i watch people i give them the url to something uh you go to sivers.org slash book and they go to a search engine and search for it like no you you don't have to i just told you that's like you know the way that people used to call a 411 or use a phone book to look up somebody's number what's sean delaney's number well if you've just told somebody here's my phone number you'd look at them baffled if if then they called information to say hi can you give me the number to sean delaney which is 0733 and you know the directory would say well you just told me what the number is and i see so i see people searching google for things that they already know the answer to and all of this i just feel like man it is not even that difficult i just feel like with one hour of time people could be tech independent and not depend on these corporations that don't care about them. And they would know how to host their own email at their own domain and keep their own photos in a system and share them, uh, share a copy of their photos, but do not give Instagram the master copy of anything that matters to you. You know, like, what are you thinking? And, <laughs> yeah. and, and also this is for the fact that, yeah, I, I got online in the mid nineties and there was this thing that we called the dot-com boom from 1999 to 2002. And then like half of every company you ever heard about went out of business and disappeared. So I'm still completely expecting Facebook and Google to go out of business and disappear. And so if you've given them things that matter to you, well, I just it frustrates me because I expect, uh, I think you are going to live a lot longer than Facebook. All right, so there's my rant. Yeah, no, 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 that's great. That's great. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a cautionary tale for it because we do get kind of um, lured in by their, their uh, ubiquity uh, and, uh, and we, we think they're there forever, but of course, not necessarily. Um, they want you to, te- you know, they want yeah. you to be dependent on them. I mean, yeah. Apple and Google are both constantly saying, no, 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 we'll take care of that. No, 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 give us your contacts. We'll take care of that. Give us your calendar. We'll take care of that for you. Give us all your emails. We'll take care of that for you. Of course, it's in their own interest to make you dependent on them. It's very seductive, but um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's an invasion of privacy, but that's another a whole other <laughs> area. Yeah. When you create something, how do you decide that it's, ready to be shared with a, a wider public, whether that's a book or whether it's a, uh-huh. a new part of your website even? Hmm. <laughs> when there's nothing left to take away? No, okay, that's for writing. That's for like my little articles that I post. I, I, I usually blather an idea and then I remove every sentence I can until I can't remove anything more and then it's ready. But no, I think for the most part, 
the general answer is that if you wait until it's ready, then you've waited too long. Like you always have to just let it go and release it and remember that you'll keep improving. Uh, I like that the fact that we use the word release in English. Like, we, you know, I released an album, I released a book. I like the double meaning in that word. You know, it's, it's, you got to let it go. Just go. so, um, yeah, you always have to have that feeling of like, uh, it's never done. Just at some point you just say, all right, diminishing returns, whatever you want to call it, whatever metric you want to measure, just at some point, just put it out before you're ready. Yeah, I suppose computer programs are the typical way of doing that where they say, oh, I'll leave that for the next version. Right, exactly. And I think of that with everything. I mean, even uh, if I'm doing books, I think in terms of ebooks, that it's like, well, if I can improve it, well, if you buy the ebook from me, then you'll get the next version for free. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're coming near the end, Derek. So I want to ask you a few questions just about how education could be different. So if you could rewind your own life or be more proactive in your own child's education, how would you like your education to have been different? Or how would you like your child's education to be different? This is one where I have more questions than answers. In short, I don't know, partially because my kid is only eight and I'm still just learning this. You know, if we were, if you asked me that in 10 years, I might have more opinions. For now, I think more and more I'm leaning towards a really interesting article that's out there that I recommend searching for or linking to in the show notes. Search for How to Raise Your Kids to Be Billionaires by Charlie Tips, T-I-P-S. I think it's hosted at dailydot.com. He is a California investor guy that's been around a lot of billionaires and is quite successful himself. So he's watched a lot of his friends' kids grow up and he's gotten to know many billionaires and seeing how they got to where they were. So his article is not about the money at all, but it's just more about like how to raise kids that are exceptionally happy and thriving in this world. So I jotted down before our call, the kind of a quick bullet point, just so I didn't say, uh, so listeners go search the web and that's your answer. His bullet points from the article are, uh, make them aware of the full range of life options, which is kind of like I said about like the people that just end up into some middle management role at some company, like nobody showed them that you could go start an ostrich farm or getting a job on a fishing boat or whatever. Like, I love the fact we didn't talk about it, but it was so useful that I, I was in a circus for 10 years. Like that was my full-time job from the age of 18 to 28. I was a ringleader MC of a circus and everybody I knew were like jugglers and magicians and these kind of people. And the guy that started the circus was just some kooky guy from the art center that just randomly one day decided to start a circus. And so found some kids that juggled and started it and just, yeah, it really helped me to be around these misfits. So um, I could relate to that. And he said, don't send them to public school, not even to the prep schools that uh, are just public schools on steroids. He said, teach, teach a love of work, teach a love of people. This was a big one where he said, in my household, we always had strangers coming through and staying. We would often kind of, he said, we lived in San Francisco and sometimes we'd just meet a homeless person and invite them over to stay at our house for a couple of days. And and get to know them. And he said, I wanted to teach my kids the love of people, all people. 
So he says, teach generosity, make them teen outcasts. That was a big one that nobody gets great by fitting in. Teach numeracy because so many things in life ultimately come down to getting the real facts. And he said, no allowances, like don't give them an allowance and don't get a, a dumb job at Burger King, but instead always encourage them to go create something and make something happen, create a project that makes money. Even if it's just a few dollars, that's better than giving them a few dollars, help them make something that earns a few dollars. So yeah, I, I keep coming back to that. And sorry, you're also catching me at a weird time during this, this lockdown where the, with the school closed, where I just kind of had my expectations upended. You know, I, part of the reason I moved to Oxford is because it was so known for its great schools. And I thought, well, this is going to be a great place to raise a kid here in this place that knows something about education. And it's been really weird the last couple months to see how my kid is just thriving so much more since we pulled him out of school. So yeah, I've kind of had my expectations upended, which made me think about this, how to raise your kids to be billionaires article. And I think the fact that you're able to help your kid and you're, you know, you're at home and you have the capacity and you have the, the wherewithal and the interest to support him. I think that's, that, that's very helpful for him. But what about if you were to think about how you can scale up the kind of education you would like your child to have? Ooh. How, 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 how is that possible? Or how would you, how would you envisage to, to educate the number of people that, that our education system tries to educate at scale where, where they're still growing up to be, in Charlie Tips's words, billionaires? <laughs> I do have a tiny idea. And this is one I've only put a few hours of thought into. It's not a big idea. But I call it the school of mastery. Uh, I've written about it on my site. I think it's uh, sivers.org slash M-A-S-C-H. Uh, the first two letters of mastery and then the first three letters of school. So it's mastery school. It's like a place where anyone who wants to focus on a skill of their choice and be surrounded by other people doing the same could go to this place with a few coaches, uh, people who are experts on the craft of mastery that can then offer help and guidance to the students. So I was influenced by Salman Khan's proposal to uh, flip the classroom, this idea that the core of learning is done in independent study using online materials, and then you get together with the teachers after you've learned in order to review or for a little guidance and coaching. But the actual core of the information transfer happens like it, privately at home online. So the idea then is that if we just assume that the best teachers of any subject have already shared their teachings in some mass way, whether it's like video courses or books or whatever, well then you don't need the in-person classroom to teach you anything. Instead, you get the teaching through the media sources, books or internet or whatever, video. But then the local coaches in person can just help guide each student's path to mastery in whatever subject. So then these people in person at the school don't need to be a master in calculus, a master at uh, the flute, a master at calligraphy. Instead, they just need to be great at guiding mastery in any subject, which is, I think, a general skill. So I, like the, I do still like the idea of 
going away to school somewhere. I think, I don't know about you, but there was a special feeling when I was like 17 and I went away to go to Berklee School of Music in Boston. It gives a real kind of focused and seriousness to it. It's, it's, I think it fits the story we tell ourselves, right? Like, I am going away to this place for this purpose, right? Some people do it with yoga. I am going to India to do yoga, or I am going to this health retreat to get healthy. Well, it's kind of the same. Like, wait, I'm going away to this place where I am going to become great at this skill I want to learn. So, uh, yeah, I really like the and, idea. And, and is that something that you would envisage happening, say, at, eight, at age 18, or is it something that could happen earlier? Oh, whenever... Whenever they're ready. So say the 14-year-old Derek Sivers could have gone to, to yes. learn about Black Sabbath. Yeah, well, just, yeah about music. And, yeah, here, music, here's how to yeah, be a great yeah. heavy metal musician. Yeah, different people hit it at different times. You know, yeah. I, I got really close a couple of years ago with an Olympic athlete that she found her calling when she was five. Like at the age of five, when she went to ballet class, just right away, she was like, this is it. I am going to be the best in the world at this thing. And she went on to do it. She just had, she knew at that age. And so luckily her parents, even though she grew up like very rural and poor, her parents saw this in her and they pulled her out of normal school. And from that point on, she never went to a general school. She only went to specialist schools for professional athletes to kind of teach some basic, you know, basic requirements on the side while they were really focused all day long on their coaching and excelling at their Olympic sports. So maybe that's what schools need to do is to help people find their, their, their area of specialism or mastery. Yeah. Even, Potential I mean, mastery. We say find it as if it's hidden, you know, like yeah. we talk about finding a great love, but no, I think kind of like relationships, it's something that you need to make. You craft it yourself. You, um, you need to make a great marriage and make a great relationship. So I think you just kind of pick something to do and then you go make it happen. And that's why I like that you asked that question about, music that, yeah, I think it really helped that I was forced to take music lessons for a number of years and then found my intrinsic interest in music independently. Yeah. But I just, it helped that I, yeah, I never found music at first, but then when I did kind of... Uh, you were well prepared for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you mentioned, and this is finally, uh, you mentioned earlier working in the circus and with, with uh, lots of misfits, but what advice would you give a student who knows that they're a misfit in the school system or who believes that they won't do themselves justice in their school leaving examinations? What, what, what would you say to them based on your experience of life and learning? Sorry, the most boring answer ever is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on who. I'm, I'm really bad with like, blanket advice, like every, everybody needs this advice. But before getting to know anything about that person, I would just help to reassure them and remind them that school itself is not that important. You don't need to take it too seriously. In fact, it, it's probably really healthy to have a healthy disrespect for the school and to challenge the things the teachers are saying and push back I think could be really beneficial. You know, like my, like Kimo Williams did to me by looking at Berkeley School of Music, not in reverence, but in order to say, uh, yeah, they're going to take you four years to something, to, to learn something you can learn in two years, or they're going to teach you something in a hundred hours that I can teach you in two hours. So, you know, that was really, really healthy. So in a way I, yeah, uh, 
I think if somebody was a misfit in the school system, I'd, I'd help reward that. I'd let them know, you know, congratulations. Do not try to fit in. The system is all kind of bullshit anyway. And you need, you know, if you see that, then you can use it to your advantage and you be the boss of your own learning instead of seeing yourself as the slave to their system. Derek, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. If people want to contact you and also, I know you have three books coming out. Do you want to say a little bit about, about the books and about how people can, can contact you if, they're, if they want to hear more? I don't need to talk about the books, but if you go to my site, go to sivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S.org. My favorite thing is when people introduce themselves. That's why I put myself out there like this is because I love finding the people that find me. So please uh, click the, my email address on the site. And, and you do respond to emails, as I know. Every single one. <laughs> I enjoy it. So yeah, send me an email, say hello, ask me anything, or just introduce yourself. And I can vouch for the fact that if you do introduce yourself to Derek Sivers, he will respond. You can find out more about Derek's work and ideas at his website, sivers.org. Thanks to Derek too for telling me that the setting on my mic input was wrong and thus enabling me to improve the sound quality of the podcasts I record using Zoom. If you liked this week's podcast, please leave a review and rating of it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to help more people find out about it. You can listen to or download over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on Podcasts. You can write to me with comments or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, which was published by Routledge, is Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have. It has chapters on many aspects of teaching, such as teaching methods, homework, teaching reading, and achieving a work-life balance. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.